0: You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. The Nashville Statement is a confessional document released by CBMW in 2017. Since its release, the Nashville Statement has been signed by over 25,000 evangelical pastors, scholars, and leaders, as well as adopted and affirmed by evangelical churches and institutions across the world. In this podcast series, we are walking through each of the 14 articles of the Nashville Statement as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications with Denny, who is one of the statement's principal authors. Today, we are talking about Article 4. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. My name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. Like I said, today we're going to be talking about Article 4, and let me just read it to get us kicked off here. It says, We affirm that... Divinely ordained differences between male and female reflect God's original design and are meant for human good and human flourishing.
1: Yeah, Article 4 is uh, pointing us back again to what the situation was before the fall. So it's talking about divinely ordained differences between male and female, reflecting God's original creation Design. So to understand what that means, you've got to look at Genesis one and Genesis two. Now there are certain things we can know about God's original design just from natural revelation. But if you want the full picture, you've got to look at divine revelation. And it says in uh, Genesis in chapter one, verse twenty six. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea." and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them now in verse 27 it's giving you both what the man and woman have in common and also also what they are how they are different it says God created man in His own kind, and it's using the Hebrew term there, Adam, and it's related to the term uh, Adama, because Adam later we find out in chapter two was taken from the ground, um, but it's it's using the word Adam, and it's the it's kind of like our word mankind in this context, okay? It, but it's also used for Adam's name later, um, but here it's talking about mankind. So God created mankind essentially, in his own image. So that's a statement about humanity, all of humanity being created in the image of God. Now, that simply means that humanity, apart, standing apart from every other part of creation, are going to reflect God in ways that none of the others do. I think there's personal characteristics to that. There's functional characteristics to that. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Um, but both of them equally share the image of God. And, and, and so that's what they have in common. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so that's what they have different. Um, the man and the woman are different from one another in that they come in two distinct genres. Um, and, and so the, the man, his body is organized for reproducing as a father, And the woman's body is organized for reproducing as a mother. Those are biological realities. And you know that that's what he has in mind when he says um, male and female because he tells them after this to be fruitful and to multiply. So that is God's original creation design. There's a sameness that's there, both equally created in the image of God, but there's a difference that's there. They have bodily differences according to the body's organization for reproduction, and that's going to produce um, some social differences that um, are more f- fully explicated in, in chapter 2.
0: Before we get to chapter 2, um, on that Genesis 1 note, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we could even say that the, the Hebrew words for male and female, if you look at their etymology, they do have reference for that bodily uh, reproductive structure. Male is oriented one way, female is oriented another way, and both of them complementary, fitting together with one another. Um, and so there's there's emphasis in Genesis 1 on sameness, but there's even distinction there in Genesis 1. And then that's fleshed out, especially that distinction, that difference in Genesis chapter 2. Absolutely. So it, it's, the original readers I think would have seen exactly what
1: you're pointing out, the etymological connection to the reproductive structures of the male and the female. And we don't have to get any more specific than that. I think everybody can figure it out. But uh, it, it's, it, that's definitely a part of it. And so
0: their, their names are reflecting their design. So you have biological difference, uh, we could summarize in Genesis 1, and then you say social difference, and we're gonna get to that in just a, a second. But even in the way that God created or creates the man and the woman in Genesis 2, this has always struck me recently especially is different god makes adam out of the ground uh, almost pointing to this vocational orientation toward the ground and then he takes the uh, the rib out of this out of the side of adam and then forms the woman out builds the woman we could even say uh, looking again at the hebrew word there from that rib from the side of of adam so even where they come from. Is different there's a difference built into the way that God makes them and that difference corresponding and complementary exactly
1: and and here's here's the thing even um, you know people have asked before can can egalitarians sign the Nashville statement we talked about this previously I think they can because we don't fle- flesh out the nature of the divinely ordained differences um, however as a complementarian I would argue um, that those divinely ordained differences go beyond just the bodily differences. Um, And that's where, you know, egalitarians and complementarians, you know, depart from one another. Um, Egalitarians would say, well, they're created equally in the image of God. They do have bodily differences that are complementary, right? They can, they form a uh, reproductive whole together. But then at that point, that's where the differences sort of end. Because for egalitarians, the the social implications of that are almost null in terms of uh, what the male and the female, what the economy of their relationship is in the church, in the home, and even in the wider world. And that's where I think Genesis 2 actually indicates something different than where egalitarians stand on this. So I'm just setting this up saying, yes, I do think that if you just look at Nashville, there's nothing there that egalitarian couldn't sign, um, or, or, you know, endorse. Um, but I do as a complementarian, I would say that as you fill out what these things look like in practice, there's more to it. There is a social, you know, consequence of the fact that a woman's body is organized for reproducing as a female and a man's body is organized for reproducing as, as a male.
0: Yeah. To that point, I think an interesting thought experiment, uh, that i've used before is think about how genesis 2 could have unfolded it could have unfolded god could have made adam and eve at the exact same time in the exact same way but that's not what he did and i think the questions that we see the biblical authors asking of genesis 1 and 2 is why did god make the way that he did and so when we see them appealing to genesis 1 and 2 part of that appeal is God didn't do it this way, but God did it this way. And so we should see that there's meaning and implications there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that.
0: So that is uh, the affirmation. It says that these differences, the creation design, are meant for human good and human flourishing. We could say, quite literally, human flourishing only comes by these divinely ordained differences, male and female, in reproductive union in the covenant of marriage. Yeah, and this
1: is an important point to make because it's, it's so contested today. So if you believe that these divinely ordained differences between male and female are for your good and flourishing, um, that would preclude any attempt to destroy or efface those differences. So when you look at the transgender phenomenon and the way that our culture today is trying to address people with gender dysphoria, um, maybe I should say something about definition here transgender is a catch-all term for the many ways that somebody might feel themselves to be different than what their body's organization for reproduction would indicate okay so they feel out of sync with their their body um, gender dysphoria is the mental distress that a person experiences because of that out of syncness and so you have medical authorities today saying look, what we need to try to do is reduce dysphoria, reduce the mental distress. And we can take whatever inf- interventions that, you know, medical technology can provide to reduce that str- that mental distress. And what they're saying that you do is what is so-called gender-affirming care. And gender-affirming care is trying to erase um, male and female bodily difference. It'll start with puberty suppression, then it moves on to, uh, hormones that they administer to children sometimes, uh, certainly to adolescents. And then finally it could end up in these destructive surgeries. So what are these surgeries doing? Those surgeries are saying that this current body is not for the good and flourishing of this person. The, the divinely ordained difference that we would recognize as a divinely approved difference is not good for them. And so what we're trying to affirm here is that, no, this is what God intended to be a good for our good and for our blessing. And if you start trying to efface what God has created, you're, you're basically kicking against the goads. You're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the interventions that are mainstream now from medical authorities are morally implicated. They're not just scientific... Um, you know, the results of scientific investigation. In fact, they don't have the science behind them. Um, And it it really, and you're hearing this more and more from detransitioners who are coming out and talking about how these medical interventions have just hurt them and how they can't put everything back together. That's been lost to them. Some of them lose their fertility. Um, Some of them lose healthy body parts, healthy organs. And so it's, we, want, we have a good message to share to folks, and that's that God's design is actually for our good. And if our mind doesn't match that, it's not the body that needs to change, it's the mind that needs to change.
0: Well, and that gets to the denial. It says in Article 4 denial, we deny that such differences are a result of the fall or are a tragedy to be overcome. It seems like that's the approach of these transgender surgeries. They look at healthy body parts, healthy biology, and they see a tragedy because uh, there's some sort of mismatch between what's going on in the head. Oh, exactly. And so a lot of times
1: people's, frankly, if if you, you know that we live in a fallen world, the fallen world affects everything. It affects our bodies, it affects our minds. But that means that you have to be ready for the reality that sometimes your mind can lie to you. Sometimes what you think about yourself may not correspond to reality. And when you have a healthy body that is clearly manifesting God's design, but you have a a mind that that feels uncomfortable with that design. The problem is not the body. The problem is the mind. It's the mind that needs to change. But we've got that result we've got that reversed today to to where we're saying no, it's the body that has to change to conform to the mind. It's that, and that's not just for with, with the transgender phenomenon. Uh, you, to a certain extent, this applies to sexuality, right? So what a person's patterns of desires are can be deceiving. Now, what people are told today is that your patterns of desires, whatever they are, that's what's natural. Even if it goes against your body's orientation. Everybody's body has an orientation. A male body is oriented towards a female body. A female's body is oriented toward a male body. But the common thought today is, is that, no, your orientation is not determined by your what God has revealed through your body. It's revealed through what you feel like, whatever your sexual feelings are. And if those are aberrant sexual feelings, according to God's revelation, that doesn't matter. Yeah, that's natural to you, and it should be affirmed, and you should uh, pursue it. And what we're saying here is that, no, these divinely ordained uh, these differences are not a result of the fall or a tragedy be, to be overcome. You don't want to overcome what God has clearly revealed in His will in the uh, in our bodies.
0: Yeah, and I think in that way we can see how what came before our period of time and the LGBT revolution, the sexual revolution. Um, it was sort of the way was paved with this sort of functional social interchangeability. That's really what was happening. There was a downplaying of the differences between men and women, that there really are genuine differences. And it sort of paved the way for that, that functional inter- interchangeability to a sexual interchangeability. But what we're saying here in this article is just that, no, the male-female complementary uh, design, that's God's original design and we all should embrace it for human flourishing. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.